This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January the 16th, 2017. This is episode 1931 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday. That's a listener feedback show, and uh, got a good one for you today. First up, I want to remind you about a couple things that are, that are going on right now. Number one, we are getting geared up for our big spring event here at Nine Mile Farm TSP Ranch. Uh, that will be the third week of March. Tickets are not on sale yet. It'll probably be at least a couple weeks before they go on sale. We're going to get everything batted down. I am reviewing right now applications by instructors, and I want to throw out an invitation one more time before I make decisions because I think I'm going to have enough people submitting this time that I'm not going to take everybody. And I want anybody that has an opportunity or wants an opportunity to submit, to submit. I've heard from some people, well, I'm thinking about it. Don't think about it. Don't think, if you think you can do something good, get it to me because I'm trying to put as much diversity in this and I'm trying to do things a little differently, not necessarily differently as a, a, a structure, but different subjects than we did in the last one. So that we have, you know, a lot of people come to almost every one of these things and you want to have different things for them. This is going to be a great event. It's uh, going to be five sessions for three days. So it's 15 total sessions, a little bit more a little less uh, jammed together when we did seven sessions and 15 minutes between the sessions, whether there's a break or not, to leave a little buffer and, and give John Schmata, who does the video stuff, a, a little bit of a break. On that note, it will all be videoed again. Well, all of, well, hold on to that. All of the publicly announced sessions will be videoed and available on the uh, MSB. There will probably be one or two unannounced, non-publicly visible in any way, shape, or form sessions at this workshop that will be private for students only that no one will ever see. Uh, I'm just going to say that. Uh, kind of a special bonus for those that get to come. Anyway, if you'd like to be considered as an instructor for this coming event, uh, send me an email with TSPC instructor in the subject line and uh, let me know kind of just a couple sentences. You don't have to give me a big breakdown of what you want to do, what you want to do, how you envision doing it. The presentation should be one hour or less. Um, can be outdoors, can be indoors, it's up to you. Indoors, is, if it can be done indoors, that's probably good, because even if you want to do it outdoors, if it rains, you know, we can shift stuff around if we get rain here and there, but you get what I'm saying. Anyway, just wanted to kind of let you guys have a reminder about that, and I did hear two people say through proxies, basically, I'm thinking about doing something. Don't think, act. And if you have submitted something to me about being an instructor, And you didn't hear back, uh, it's under consideration, or I got it, I'm thinking about it, or you know, you're in the folder for, for consideration or something like that. Assume I didn't get it, because I think I responded to everybody and resent it to me. If you resent it to me and I got it, and I'm going to get it twice, I'm not going to be upset. But you might be upset if you think you sent it to me and I didn't get it and I don't consider you. Anyway, so what are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, lead story today, Trump is about to deliver on universal health care. The writing's now on the wall. Uh, it's actually being reported on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, etc., though they're not going all the way there with it yet. I did hear a Fox commentator say, this is not something typical of Republicans. What sounds like what he's talking about is universal health care. Yeah, 
Redneck told you that all the way back in 2009, that this is what would come and exactly how it would come. I'll give you the details on that, and uh, we won't go too long on that one. It's something we've been talking about, well, since 2009, when I was crazy, saying, well, we'll leave it for later. Um, should you even consider or ever consider a privately held mortgage, either as the holder or the uh, mortgagee? I have a question on that. We'll talk about it. Proper storage of multi-pump pellet rifles. So things like the Benjamin 392. What's the right way to store that sucker, and how long can you leave it fully pumped before you might do damage to it? Um, there's a new demographic being hit by student loan debt, and that demographic is grandma. Yeah, grandma. I'll, I'll explain. Uh, dealing with school bullies, what is a parent to do? I, I have a very tough question. I'm going to give you some thoughts on it. Uh, And every situation is different, but this is something more and more people are having to deal with. And I think just telling kids, well, just make the best of it or try to make them your friend or don't worry about it, doesn't really work. So we're going to talk about this, and I think this is a serious issue, this one. Um, a lesson from the horseless carriage and the whip and saddle makers. What could that possibly be? You're going to have to wait to find out. Time for gene silencing spray. Yes, I said silence. Like, silence, I kill you. Like that, yes. Gene silencing spray. I'm, I'm not kidding. I, I wish I was. And coming to us from the mines at Monsanto. Um, next up, proof that the brainwashing of farmers starts early from people like Monsanto. Really early. And when you hear this, oh, it's, uh, you, you, you just, just wait. Just wait. Um, harvesting water from snowmelt and limitations thereof. And uh, a closing segment today, an interesting way to predict whether a product will be a success or a failure from Scott Adams, creator of Dun 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 Dilbert. All that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode. The episode is 1931. Uh, I have Defending Your Life, and I have Tilt. It's a pinball machine, almost. And lastly, I have the Hoover Moratorium. Uh, building on that, though, before we get into one of those segments, the one I'm going to read is Defending Your Life, and uh, well, it's going to... Send the shiver right up your spine, I'm just telling you. Uh, notable births, though, this year. Lots of them. Mikhail Gorbachev, living, last leader of the Soviet Union. Boris Yeltsin, first president of the Russian Federation after the Soviet Union fell apart. 
Raul Castro, also living, the first communist president of Cuba and his, after his brother Fidel retired for health reasons. And Rupert Murdoch, living, CEO of News Corp and Fox News. And in entertainment, Rip Torn, also living, he was Zed in Men in Black and the defense attorney in Defend Your Life. William Shatner, living, Captain Kirk of the original Star Trek and of several star, uh, several, and star of several TV series. Remember TJ Hooker? How is that ever successful? Guys, really? Does anybody else in this audience remember from the 80s TJ Hooker? Was that, anyway, okay, yeah. How about Leonard Nimoy was born this year, Mr. Spock in the original Star Trek and recurring character on Fringe. James Earl Jones, who's also living the voice of Darth Vader in Star Wars, Mufasa in The Lion King, and roles in Coming to America, The Hunt for Red October, Field of Dreams, and more. Dan Rather was also born this year, and still alive, still with us. CBS, CBS News Reader, I find it difficult to call him a journalist. You know, I like that. News Reader. They call them newsmen, anchormen, whatever. I think I'm like, I like that, that Alex. I'm going to, from now on, refer to all these people as news readers. Uh, maybe I should call some of them propaganda readers. Anyway, in other news, Al Capone this year is found guilty of tax evasion. Dracula and Frankenstein are released as movies. They save Universal Studios, who was losing their ass. The Empire State Building is completed, tallest building in the world at this point. Took a little over a year to complete. You could gloss over that if you want to. They built the Empire State Building in one freaking year in 1930-1931. One freaking year. How long does it take us to build a freaking two-story apartment building in 2017? One year. They built the Empire State Building. I remember, I'm a little rant here. It was back toward the beginning of the show, like around 2008, 2009. I covered a thing. It was either in Mesquite or McKinney, Texas. Texas. And they had this little ditch the kids were walking across. And it was like, they were showing these little girls. She was like six years old skipping across the rocks. And the parents were worried they were going to get hurt. So they wanted to build a bridge across the ditch. But because there were like multiple homeowners associations involved in a floodplain and a government getting involved, it was going to cost them $9 million to build a freaking bridge across a ditch. But in 1930 to 1931, they built the freaking Empire State Building from nothing to this mighty, this mighty building in one year. Yeah, we suck today. We suck. We can't get anything done. And also, in this year, they completed the George Washington Bridge. It's open for traffic. Longest main bridge span in the world until the Golden Gate Bridge opens a few years later. Yeah, they built the Washington Bridge. I wonder how long that took. I bet, it, I bet it didn't take as long as it would take to do today. I'm just saying. Well, it has to be safe. It's been standing since 1931. I think it's pretty safe. Anyway, defending your life. Quote, I have studied, with great interest, the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose prodigy, in all probability, would be of no value and be injurious to the radical stock, to the racial stock. Otto Wagner, advisor to Adolf Hitler and future head of the SS Race and Settlement Office. Yep. Following Virginia's successfully sterilization law, 27 states have passed similar laws. However, the Catholics have successfully blocked eugenics laws in New Jersey and Colorado despite their minority status. The Pope has issued an encyclical letter this year condemning forced sterilization laws. At least anyone think forced sterilization is purely racist. The procedure is now called a Mississippi appendectomy. 
due to all the white southern people being sterilized against their will. <clears throat> Europe is getting just getting started. Denmark allows voluntary sterilization. will soon be mandatory for mental defectives. That's in quotes. In a few years, the Protestant, all of Protestant Europe will pass sterilization laws with the exception of Holland and the United Kingdom. Catholic countries will reject the idea. Fabian socialist George Bernard Shaw appears in the newsreel promoting the ideal idea of gassing all the useless human beings unless they can justify their existence. Uh-huh. His friend H.G. Wells agrees while Otis Husley is fighting the general trend in this brave new world. My take by Alex Shrugged. FYI, after World War II during the Nuremberg trials, one of the charges made against the Nazis was the mass sterilization of people. Hmm. I'm not saying the United States was the equivalent of Nazi Germany, but I sense a lot of hypocrisy being shoveled out of the back of a pickup truck along with the manure. A lot of people were embarrassed by their eugenics positions once they saw where it led, and they should have been embarrassed and ashamed. There are lessons to be learned here, but not the lesson that people of the past were bad. The lesson is too easy. I love America, but I refuse to blind myself to its historical problems. I judge that we have not fully learned our lesson. We have swept a lot of our past under the rug, and those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. I sure don't want to repeat that eugenics lesson. It hurts too much. You know, I'm just going to leave it there without much to add today as far as my take goes on the history segment. I'm just going to say if we're going to be teaching uh, young people in this country about World War II, then we should teach them the true genesis of it and where the thinking started. It didn't all just start with an insane corporal that survived World War I and managed to take over Germany. A lot of it started right here at home. And it is important that we are willing to look at that and be honest about it. Because you can't change the facts of history. You can only cover them up. And sooner or later, they either come out or they come back. I'd prefer that they come out rather than they come back when we're talking about stuff like this. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your, your first uh, question of the day uh, or, or feedback of the day. This has come to me from a bunch of different people. And uh, it's it's another one of those, gee, I was, I was right again. Yay me, not so much. Um, what I've said for those that are brand new to TSP or relatively new to TSP For years, and I said this back in 2009, uh, when the ACA, also known as Obamacare, was, was being kind of kicked around. In fact, before we even knew there was a bill that we had to pass to find out what was in it, they were just talking about the existence of a bill. I said it will pass. Um, they'll get, you know, one or two Republicans to sell you out and they'll get it to pass. It's going to be designed to fail because they can't get what they want now. It'll be around for, you know, all of Obama's administration. He will not, I said in 2009, he's going to be reelected. He will not be thrown out of office. Um, and you're going to need a Republican strongman out of nowhere, uh, in, in, in 2016. And one of the first things that they're going to do is sell you on government taking over healthcare. And they'll do it in so, I don't know exactly how, but they'll do it in some way that sounds like that's not what it is. And it will be something that only Republicans can sell to the people. Because even though the, 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 the Republicans made a big show of repealing Obamacare and all, you're seeing their true colors right now. Well, we, we, can't, we can't repeal it uh, without having a replacement for it. Well, when they were fighting it, they said they just didn't want it. Right? So the, the truth is that government is about power. It's about power and control and force. And people that go into government, even if they don't really crave power, 
It doesn't take long before they will. So you cannot crave a drug, right? Let's say, let's say morphine. You cannot crave morphine. But if I give you morphine, sooner or later you will become an addict. I can give it to you against your will, and you'll still eventually become an addict. And then you'll need it. And that's what power's like for the political. They need power. So there is no government officials out there at any significant level of government that aren't actually for more government involvement in healthcare. Because whenever they get involved in anything, they become more powerful. So the question is not if, but how. And how do you sell it? So what the big news today is Trump vows, this is a quote, insurance for everybody in Obamacare replacement plan. Let me read a little bit of this to you. This is uh, from the Washington Post, but it's being reported everywhere now. President-elect Donald Trump has said in a weekend interview that he is nearing completion of a plan to replace Obama's signature health care law with insurance for everybody while also vowing to force drug companies to negotiate directly with the government on prices in Medicare and Medicaid. Trump declined to reveal specifics in a telephone interview late Saturday with the Washington Post, but any proposals from an incoming president would almost certainly dominate the Republican effort to overhaul the federal health policy as he prepares to work with his party congressional majorities. Trump's plan likely faces questions from the right after years of GOP opposition to further expansion of government involvement in the health care system and from those on the left who see his ideas as disruptive to change brought by the Affordable Care Act and have extended coverage to tens of millions of people. You know what? I can't call it the Affordable Care Act. I can't because it's ridiculous. It's, it, it, it makes me a liar to even acknowledge it. The Unaffordable Care Act is what it is. In addition to his replacement plan for the Unaffordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, Trump said he will target pharmaceutical companies over drug prices. They're politically protected, but not anymore, he said, of pharmaceutical companies. The objectives for broadening access to insurance and lowering health care costs have always been in conflict, and it remains unclear how the plan of the incoming administration is designed, or ones that will emerge on Capitol Hill would address that tension. In general, the congressional GOP plans to replace Obamacare have tended to try to constrain costs by reducing government requirements such as medical services that must be provided under health plans sold through the law's marketplace and through states' Medicaid problem, pr programs. House Speaker Paul D. Ryan, Republican Wisconsin, and other Republicans have been talking lately about providing universal access to health insurance instead of universal insurance coverage. Trump said he expects Republicans in Congress to move quickly and in unison in the coming weeks on other priorities as well, including enacting sweeping tax cuts and beginning the building of a wall along the Mexican border. Trump warned Republicans that if the party splinters or slows his agenda, he is ready to use the power of the presidency and Twitter to usher his legislation to pass. Quote, the Congress can't get cold feet because the people will not let that happen, end quote, Trump said during the interview with the Post. Trump said his plan for replacing most aspects of Obama's health care law will be, are all but finished, although he is coy about the details. Quote, lower numbers, much lower deductibles, end quote, he said, and he's ready to unveil it along with Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky. It's very much formulated down to the final strokes. We haven't put it in quite yet, but we're going to be doing it soon, Trump said. He noted that he's waiting for his nominee for Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, to be confirmed. That decision rests with the Senate Finance Committee, which hasn't scheduled a hearing. And you can read the rest of it if you want to. It's a pretty long article. I'll have a link in the show notes. But this is the gist. What, what, what Trump is saying is we're going to come out with this plan. 
That, and if, if you listen to other things he said, market-based solutions, competition across state borders and all. But we're going to guarantee that everybody that has insurance can keep insurance. And we're going to guarantee that everybody that wants insurance can get insurance. That's this universal access uh, that Paul Ryan's uh, referring to. Well, how do you do that? See, they, they all act. All these people on these news shows, they act like this is complicated. Right? They, 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 either they're playing the fool or they really just can't make the connection. They can be that stupid. There, there's only one way to do this, and it's just something I guess they don't expect to come from Trump, and that is a public option, which could even be something like, well, what we're going to do is if you qualify for Medicaid, you get Medicaid. If you don't qualify for Medicaid, you can buy into Medicaid as a low-cost form of insurance. So that would be universal health care. Because what they would say is anybody that can afford it gets it, and anybody that can afford it buys it. Okay, well, how do you make this work? How do you get the Republicans on board with this? How do you get the Republican voter on board with this? Well, what you say to the Republicans is you guys can have all the other stuff you want. First thing we'll do, we'll remove the mandate. You are not forced to buy insurance. There's no need for a mandate. There's no need whatsoever for a mandate. If we're going to set this up so that anybody below a certain income level uh, or anybody at any income level can buy into Medicaid and anybody below a certain income level just gets it and you're free not to buy into Medicaid, you can go and buy insurance from any insurance provider you want. You can go out and get any insurance plan you want. You can buy insurance from a, a provider that's based in Florida, in Texas, without dealing with interstate bullshit. You can just buy what you want. If you want a catastrophic plan, you can have it. If you want to have a catastrophic plan in an HSA, we'll, we'll remove all those restrictions on HSAs and we'll let people put as much money in them as they want to again. You can have it. You can have anything you want. And, and the insurance companies can then compete for your business against each other and against the government-provided Medicaid. Who really wants And I can see Trump saying, nobody really wants Medicaid, but it's better than not having anything. And this way you'll have the option to go out and determine what best works for you. And this way we can make sure that no one is left behind. No one is not covered. Unless they just don't want to be covered. And we won't have to worry about pre-existing conditions because if you choose to not get insurance, you come up with a pre-existing condition, you always have the option to buy into the government option. Now, here's the biggest, the only real question in all this is what do they call it? They can't call it the government option. They can't call it the public option. Those words are tainted by, by Obamacare round one. Right, That was one of the biggest sticking points. That was one of the few things they got out of the law was the public option. So how do you get it in? Well, you need a way to sell it. Like when you want to sell people on them losing their freedoms, you call something the Patriot Act or the Freedom Act. You got it? So I'll bet you, I'll bet you that right now somewhere in, on Madison Avenue in, in some marketing firm that Donald Trump has dealt with in the past, there are people in, in suits and pantsuits sitting around a table that's a $60,000 or more conference table. And they are running scenarios, and they are coming up with what to call this thing, how to market it. That's the only question they have right now. How will this get in, though? I don't think Trump will put it in his plan. I think the Republicans will come out with this great free market plan. It'll seem like a great free market plan anyway. And the Democrats will hold the line. And what Trump will do is work behind doors with people like Chuck Schumer and say, listen, You guys can have what you want too. Come up with this. He'll, I think they'll be handed. 
the counterproposal. And then Trump will sell the Republicans on it. You know what, guys? If, if You get everything you want, and this closes the loop. And if, if government health care is that bad, then people won't buy it. They'll buy outside. It's not under the current circumstances. It's actually the best solution that they can come up with. Other than it's the best solution they can come up with that anybody will do. I mean, the best solution is say, you know what? Let's stop interfering with this market and let this market speak for itself. Which is almost sort of, kind of, not really what they're going to do. Now, when I when I presented this, when people say there's too much money in the pharma, pharmaceutical industry, there's too much money in the health insurance industry. So the pharmaceutical industry doesn't care who buys their drugs as long as somebody buys their drugs. Uh, this is a win for the pharmaceuticals because if everybody's cover, covered, everybody's going to the doctor, everybody's getting prescribed dope. And you might sell for less per unit, but you'll sell more units. So they're fine with that. This, this, is a, this is basically setting things up to where children will be taught you go to the doctor every year whether you need to or not because you have insurance now and you should go. And every time you go, it's an opportunity for your doctor who's just been visited by the latest hot-looking drug rep to put you on a, a medication you'll be on for the rest of your life. They don't care if the government buys it for half of what people used to buy it for, the, for themselves as long as more people are on it. This is the wave of the future. And there'll be some place for all these healthcare giants to sit in this, the, the insurers, but some of them will be, be bankrupt by this. They will not all survive. But what will happen is instead of actual bankruptcies, they'll be absorbed. Like, I'm not saying it's going to be Blue Cross, but let's say Blue Cross is one of the survivors. What they'll do is they would, you know, gobble up somebody like Edna, which probably would be the other way around, but you know, or Concentra or whatever. You'll see this conglomeration, and you'll see two classes of citizens in this. People with really good private insurance and people with crappy public insurance. That's your future. It's been coming for a long time. Um, read the article. Think about the things Trump is saying he's going to give you. Realize he's not running for election now. He's already elected. He's not. He's not making a promise so that he can get elected. Now he's telling you what he wants this to look like. And here's the, the real key on this. If you listen to the talking heads right now, what they'll tell you is he's not really going to tell the Republicans what to do. He's going to give them a set of goals and let them figure out how to get it done. Yeah. Because he wants his hands off of it enough that it looks like a fight. This has to look like a fight between Democrats and Republicans. Like they don't actually agree. But they're both in it because their own, their, their, their true constituencies, their lobbyists, there's money on both sides in this. There's a lot of money on, there's new government money, which is power for the government, and there's new private money, which is power for the, for the, the, the private, uh, sector as well, as far as monetary. This is, this is the dawn of a new neo-fascism in the health insurance industry. Uh, I wish I had better news, but that's what you're getting. And, and I'm telling you, At this point, people will accept it because they can't afford not to financially anymore. Next up, totally out of left field here, uh, a question I've never had any form of before. I've had questions of owner financing, but not, not uh, private mortgage. This is from Andrew. Andrew says, question, what are the pros and cons of having a private party or individual hold your mortgage? Background, I was discussing the process of financing our new homestead with a friend. He was asking some direct, very specific questions. He then asked if we would be interested in him buying the loan and holding the mortgage privately. He cited that his money was not working while sitting in the bank. The anarchist in me wants to do this for so many reasons, but obviously some extensive legal paperwork would need to be drawn up. I just wanted to get your opinion. Uh, thanks. This is from a guy named Andrew. Well, Andrew, 
Um, I my biggest concern is it's a friend because this type of arrangement always has to be 100% business. Um, I, my first question to your friend would be, are you doing this with anybody else right now? And find out if that's the case, or if this is just an idea that popped into his head. And this might be a guy with money sitting around that he wants in a relatively low-risk uh, place, and he looks at, you know, uh, this is a way to create long-term cash flow with a decent interest rate that's better than a bank because he doesn't want to be in stocks or other, uh, uh, you know, uh, other commodities uh, or other securities right now. He doesn't want the risk. A, my, my concern is I, I don't know that I would be willing to tie my money up for the type of return you'd be getting out. So I don't know if he's thinking, you know, you need him to do this and that therefore he's going to get a higher interest rate. Because I would say that as long as you can qualify for a standard mortgage, then the interest rate you should be discussing with him would be the current market interest rate, which on a 15 year fixed right now is three and a quarter percent. And on a 30 year fixed is 3.75%. Uh, yielding out at about 3.9, uh, on the APR. Uh, so you're gonna make less than 4% on your money, and if he's doing a 30 year, uh, standard mortgage agreement with you, he's gonna make 4% on his money over 30 years. That's a long time to tie money up. So there's, there's a lot of things. Obviously, this would need, you, you have to have an attorney involved with this who specializes in things like, like right of survivorship. If, if he, if he dies, what happens? Who inherits the mortgage? Uh, if he can, can he sell your mortgage? So the the way I would see this happening, he would have enough money to basically buy the house cash and then mortgage it to you, uh, or he would have a, the situation where you'd already secured the financing. He would basically pay off your mortgage and essentially buy the house from you, then mortgage it back to you. Something along those lines. So. Whatever agreement you had with him as far as the way all the terms work would have to be ironclad that if it's transferred to another party, they can't do something like accelerate and call the loan early. So you'd have to have a provision specifically there. You can't call the loan early. What are procedures if you end up in foreclosure? Like what leads to a foreclosing? Um, you know, because it's, it's fine that you know each other and you can work something out if something that comes around, but there's a point where I want my money. You're sitting in my house, and I want my money. Because that's the truth. He owns your house at that point, like the bank owns mine. So I, I would be very careful. I can't think of many advantages. I, I really can't, other than if you got in a tight way, a private individual may, may, may be more likely to work with you to get through it. But, there, I mean, there's a lot, like, you have to think about. So if you sell the house, you have to make sure there's a provision in there that doesn't carry any penalty for early payoff. What if he thinks he's got his money set to make four points for you know the next 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, and then a month from now you decide, you know, this really isn't our thing, and we, you know, don't say it can't happen. Or a year from now, something happens and changes your life. You sell it, and then, oh, here's your money back. And he barely made any money at all on it. He has to be okay with that. So I think you have to have a much deeper discussion with him and ask yourself, what what do you get by doing this? What do you get? Because I don't know that you get much of anything. The, the main time you would do something like this would be when you can't qualify for the mortgage and this person that knows you knows that you're good for it and therefore would do it for you. And in, in general, if that's the case, you should be paying a higher interest rate. 
they're assuming a greater risk. They're assuming a risk that a traditional lender does not want to assume. You also have to talk about things like down payments like and closing costs and all of that stuff because that's all pretty boilerplate when it comes to a standard mortgage. Um, if you're going to bypass everything altogether and do this privately, you're going to have to make sure, you know, what about an assessment? What, you know, having uh, somebody come in and do an appraisal, uh, home inspection, all the things that a conventional lender would want to know. If he doesn't care, that's a cause of concern for me. Because that doesn't mean that he's malicious. It might just mean that he's incompetent. If you want me to loan you money on a house, even if I think you're 100% good for it, that house is my collateral. If the foundation is eaten up with termites, I want to know before I give you my money. So all of that stuff has to be considered. And you have to make sure that it's done in some way where there's an annual statement because you have a tax deduction on the interest on the mortgage and on the property taxes. So you know how is property tax going to be handled? Do banks usually do this with escrow and they pay the tax for you. All of that stuff has to be worked out. And I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying, what do you get out of it? You're helping your buddy? I mean, in some ways I get that too. I'd rather have my friend have the interest than the bank. But as far as anarchist in you, I don't see a conflict with anarchy and lending, being, you know, borrowing money from the bank unless it's like an FHA loan. If you're doing a conventional mortgage with a bank, you know, you're doing 10% down or whatever, and it's a conventional mortgage instead of a government-assisted mortgage, then that's that has anarchy has nothing to do with it. It's a private company called a bank giving you private money that you then, I mean, pff, your friend doing it, I mean, the money is fiat. Well, it's not even fiat. It's debt-backed U.S. currency. But unless you guys are working your shit out in Bitcoin or something like that, you're still using their money. So I, I don't know that you get anything, and I'm I'm leery about doing things outside of the norm if there's no benefit in it for me. So when your original question was, what's the benefit, I don't know what the benefit to you is. I don't know that you get any benefit out of this. Now, if he's going to say, I'm going to, no down payment, no money down, right? You just pay your closing costs, and you get to keep 3 or 10% of the purchase price in your pocket, essentially turning it into something more like a VA loan, uh, you know, let's say he's willing to say, I'll pay your, sh I'll pay all your shit. I'll pay the total cost. And you put no money down. Now you've got something. I wouldn't do that for you. Maybe he would, but I, I don't know why you would do this other than to give him a windfall and possibly risk your relationship. If it's done, it must all be done in writing. It must be completely clear. And the decision to do so, I would put it this way. If you wouldn't do it with a stranger, you had no reason to distrust, don't do it with a friend that you do. That's my advice. Let's take another one. Next up, a gun question, but an air gun question. It says, Jack, thanks for recommending the Benjamin 392. Excellent RCD. Rat communication device. Also, since it takes two hours to reload, it really teaches you not to waste your shots. Two hours is not that bad. Come on. We're talking about a minute at the most. Minute. I wouldn't even say a minute. Uh, uh, 10, 15 seconds. Uh, you don't go to full pump, and you probably don't need full pump. Anyway, question. It is, is it okay to leave it pumped and loaded for a few hours overnight for a couple of days? The experts in, in, in on the internet seem to have a, a wide variety of the opinions. Thanks, Leon. Um, Leon, let me say this: the Benjamin 392 
is a is a 22 caliber uh, pellet gun, variable pump with with uh, 10 pumps. Uh, puts a pellet out about 700 feet per second, somewhere in that range. It's a potentially lethal tool. Meaning, the big problem I have with you leaving it pumped, cocked, and loaded, besides whether that's good for the equipment or not, is it's now in a state where the only thing preventing its discharge is taking it off safe and pulling the trigger. I generally don't store guns in that condition of any type whatsoever. Firearms, whatever. Guns that I might have to grab for quick use, like a .22 for killing a pest, I would generally store with a magazine uh, loaded and the weapon on safe and the action forward and empty so that you, you have to suck in the condition too, I guess, right? Um, I, I will store my handguns in that condition, especially when they're on my body or when I'm going to sleep at night and they're in the, the dresser right next to me, but not leaning up against my wall. I just don't think it's a good idea from a safety standpoint. I don't beat the shit out of people who do it, especially if they don't have children in their homes. Right? If everybody in their home is uh, you know a, a, a child... Old enough that's been brought up with gun safety that's that's like you know in their late teens or something and other adults or they live alone and they keep a gun like that you know somewhere in the house to grab and, and use I understand but in general I think there's a safety consideration so that's that's first secondly when that weapon's stored under high pressure all that pressure is on the seal now the seals are designed to hold that pressure in. So, in of itself, it shouldn't be a bad thing, but it's under high pressure for a long time. It's conceivable that that could do damage to the seals. So, what I would recommend is no long-term storage of the weapon under a full charge. None. Um, a few hours? No problem. I mean... I go air gun hunting, and I have the thing over my shoulder for hours at a time like that. I'm not going to wait till I see something to pump it up. As you mentioned, while it doesn't take two hours to load, it takes a while. It makes some noise, and you do an awful lot of moving around. And uh, I think the new experimental plane is buzzing my house. That thing is louder than any other jet I've seen come out of Lockheed. Uh, I'm not sure what the deal with that thing is. Anyway, that's that sound in the background. Um, so I don't see a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it being stored overnight. Uh, for some for some reason that you have to be doing it, like uh, I'm afraid the rat is going to show up tonight, and I want to be ready to kill him. And if 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 the whatever uh, notifies me the rat is there it happens, I'm going to get up and do it. I would say that maybe then that next day that that thing should be discharged into a safe place. Uh, that weapon should be given a rest. But this is, I think, the most important thing. The best way to store variable pump pellet rifles is with one to two pumps in them, a, a, a lightly charged situation. This keeps, you want to make sure your pistons are oiled and everything like that, and with, with, with good lubrication and some pressure, your seals stay tight, they still way full, still stay well formed. I've seen old pellet guns that sat around like for a long time uncharged, and when you go to pump them, they won't hold. Usually... A whole bunch of lube on the piston and a little bit of pumping, and they, they, they almost like they heal themselves. 
But that's what's happening. Those, those seals are drying out because they're not sealed. So I guess my suggestion would be that if you wanted to be in a semi-ready state, go ahead and store it with two pumps. And then that way, all that it needs to be done is cock drop in the, you know, some more pumps, cock drop the pellet in. Um, you're probably not going to do any major damage to it by storing it for significant periods of time fully pumped up. But it's probably not a best practice. And again, what the manufacturer would tell you is store it unloaded, that's to cover their ass for safety reasons, uncocked with one to two pumps of air in it. And I would tell you that is a good best practice. So that that's the best answer I can give you to it. And just be careful with pellet guns because they they are not toys. I know it says so right on the box, but it, it bears repeating uh, once in a while. It says the uh, next one I have here is from Ben. Ben says just read the first story in this email. It's about college loans and how it's getting worse. If you haven't seen the latest growing demographic is reti- is retired, read this. And the time to recoup the cost of college is now 34. Crazy, Jack was right. Sent for my iPhone. Um, so this came in, like he said, it's an email. Uh, but I, I recognized where it was from. It's from a place called The Hustle. And the Hustle is indeed not just an email newsletter thing. It is a website. So I Googled the title of the, the segment Uh, in the email, student loan debt sucks for Nana too, and lo and behold, I ended up on thehustle.co, and uh, there it is in front of us, and so now I can share it with you, and it's a little easier to read than it was in the email. It says, student loan debt sucks for Nana too. Naturally, most student loan borrowers in the U.S. are young adults. However, a number of older Americans with education loans has quadrupled in the last decade. In fact, according to a new report, Americans aged 60 and older are now the fastest growing group of student loan borrowers with 2.8 million debtors and 66.7 billion in total student loan debt. 66.7 billion. What happened? Some older people are carrying their own student loans. But more than two-thirds of that debt is owed for children and grandchildren, meaning they either borrowed the money themselves or co-signed loans with a student as the main buyer. To put it another way, soaring tuition costs have combined with Nana's tendency to be the most loving and caring human on the planet and create a pile of debt larger than Uber's current valuation. Think about that. Larger than Uber's current valuation. And it's causing some serious problems. Getting back on track after defaulting on a student loan isn't easy, regardless of age. That being said, at least a 30-year-old with a job has a path to freedom. Meanwhile, a retired 70-year-old is kind of screwed, especially if they rely on Social Security. A recent anal- analysis by the Government Accountability Office found these older borrowers have become increasingly subject to the deductions from their Social Security payments when they fail to pay federal, not private, student loans. Also not to pile on the bad news, but here's more. Based on new research from the college board, it takes until age 74 to earn back the cost of a U.S. university degree. Or to be more specific, the average U.S. bachelor degree recipient doesn't recoup the cost of obtaining a degree measured as tuition paid plus wages lost from not being in the workforce for four years until the age of 34. So what that means today is if you go to college at 18 out of high school, if, if you get through college in the average four to five years that it should take you to get through college at the most, and if you get a job in your field or related field that pays reasonable wages, that you can expect then to work till you're 34 
to break even. If things go right. Man, gee, sign me up. Where do I get some of that, 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 that federal tuition money? You know, and, and, and Grandma, can you sign for me? Now, what do you think about this, this doing to our older generation? And the, 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 the person who sent this email said Jack was right. Well, this is the big thing Jack was right about. What I've said in the past, and I've said this many times, is you can't escape student loan debt. They will garnish your Social Security wages to pay it. And there's probably a lot of older people right now who look at that young person. And, and you got to think about the person that is grandma right now. They're, you know, grandma and grandpa are me and Dorothy. And, and we're young for grandparents, people a little bit older than us. And the ones that are a little bit older than us, the ones that are in their 60s and 70s, okay, these are the ones that they really are subject to this emotional pinnings because they're basically the first round of the baby boomers. They grew up with parents who were the parents from the greatest generation. They grew up with our grandparents as parents. They were told, work hard, get good grades, and things will be better. And they watched their parents many times who had come home on the GI Bill get that degree and better their life. They went out and did it, and they watched the, the civil rights movement for both people of color, but for females as well, take root, and they watch their generation get those degrees, and men and women both benefit from those degrees. And then they watch their children, that would be, you know, some of us, gener uh, Generation X, and the tweeners, follow that path, and by and large had it work out for us, and we participated in Ronald Reagan's Morning in America, and the tech boom of the 90s, and now they see that grandchild who wants that same shot. And they still believe the bullshit that they were programmed with. And they believe that Johnny is a good student, and Johnny could have done a little better and maybe got a scholarship too, but, but Johnny just wants to go to school, and it's a loan, and he'll get a good job, and he'll pay it back. But eight years from now, when Johnny's working as a waiter, if he can find that job, if he hasn't been replaced by a kiosk, he's completed 80% of his degree over eight years instead of 100% over four and he's come on hard times and he just can't pay the bill, guess who's an easy target for, to recoup the money? Grandma, because she has that government check coming in for Social Security wages. We'll just garnish it. And what does that do to her if that bill is $500 a month, which is quite reasonable at that point? Not reasonable as in it's a fair amount of money, but it's reasonable to assume that would be about how much money that person might be having to pay by that. And I know they say it's income dependent and all, but at some point it all starts to steamroll. It all starts to steamroll. But I just want you again. I think the more important thing than grandmas getting their social security garnished for uh, student loan, either for themselves, and I'm telling you, I know more and more people in their 50s going back to college, more and more. Now you, you got to think about that. If it takes 20 year old to 34, it would take a 50 year old till. When? 64. But the that's the big thing. The concept that it's taking these people, you know, 10, 12, 14 years to break even. And you got to think about this. That's now. 
That, that actually has no forward-looking value to the person that's coming out of college. Now, the only way they know that is because they're looking at the way it's worked out for people that are 34 right now. Saying that the person that's going starting college right now will recoup the investment by 34 is assuming things won't get any worse than they are right now over the next 14 to 16 years. But they did get worse over the last 14 to 16 years, and they did get worse over the prior 14 to 16 years. And to quote every mutual fund and investing ad ever, while past performance is no guarantee of future results, history has shown it to be a strong indicator, is, is relevant here. It will, it, it, 14 to 16 years from now, that number won't be 34. It will be much older. On top of it, the value of that degree is in decline. The value of a college degree has gone down while the cost has gone up. And you can't tell me otherwise. When we do inflation adjusted for today's numbers, if you had a, a bachelor's degree, and not even a, like engineering or something, you had a bachelor's degree in marketing. You had a bachelor's degree in business. You had a bachelor's degree in communication. In 1980, you might have struggled with that first job, but you'd get one. And once you got one, you would be in a position where if you were any good at what you were doing, you could move up. And by, you know, let's say from 1980 to 1985, you could move into a really good position, either through the company you got entry with, or by then with three or four years of experience, moving laterally to another company and up as you made that move. And, and have a career launched at that point. And the only one that would derail it would be you. That's what a degree was worth. And I, today, a degree is a, a license to hunt for a job that no one ever really cares about. I mean, I've had people tell me flat out that they post jobs that require a degree, even though the job has no need of a degree, because so many people have degrees, why not get somebody with one? While we're telling our people that, you know, are telling our young people that this is the most important thing in the world to them and whatever it takes, get that good education because you'll have a good life because of it. It's sad. It's sad. And the whole thing is starting to fall apart. When you start garnishing grandma's SSI, it's not long before the whole thing starts to unravel. And that's starting to happen right now. Okay, next one comes from Daniel. This is the toughest one of the day. Says, I would like your thoughts about my 10 year old daughter who's being bullied with this girl who keeps threatening her and other students, such as the other day, after this girl flicked her on the back of the head, she then started yelling, kill her, meaning for my daughter to kill her friend that was with her at the bike rack. Last year, the same girl told my son and the girl next door she was going to shoot both of them. I called the school and they told me this girl who is also 10 was not a threat to my daughter and they were running an investigation that would take up to eight days to complete. I asked them if they were going to file a report with the police, and she said no. I was wondering if I should file a report with the police. There's a lot more to the story, and writing it is hard, so it's hard for me. Uh, so I'm sorry uh, for my shortcoming. Thank you, Daniel. I, Daniel, I think you could give me every detail possible, and I still wouldn't have a, a, a complete answer for you because I can't know at a distance what you should do. You have to make certain judgment calls. All I can talk, and I, I, I'm willing to do this one even though it seems very personal because it's actually very universal. This problem is far greater than it was when I was in school. Because when I was in school, there was bullying, sure, 
but there was a limit to it, and there was an end to it. What I mean by a limit, I remember very clearly being in school and seeing kids get picked on and not being a white knight right out of the gate. Not saying, hey, you can't do that, leave them alone, whatever. But I do remember myself and other kids that were kind of not in that fold, having to worry about either doing it or having it done to us. Um, and, and we ripped on each other as, as kids. I, I don't mean that. I'm talking about actual, like really picking on somebody. That there'd be a point where you'd go, you know what, that's enough. What do you, you're done. That kids self-police that way. That, that, you know, there were kids that were confident enough in who they were that they didn't need to partake in it and they let it go. But there was a point where just, you're not, no, you're done now. You're done now, you're done now, and you're done now. And in this case, it's with girls. And that's something that I think is, to, I'm an old, I'm an old fart when I say this. So, so I know it's going to sound wrong to some of you who are younger. This is a new thing. When I was a kid, there was very little bullying by girls on other girls in school. It was much more a male thing, and it kind of ferreted itself out. I did see some bullying of girls that were picked on here and there, but the constant nature of it was generally male on male, which eventually could be handled with some level of physicality. A lot of times, not necessarily the kid being picked on, but sooner or later, stronger, older male would say, you're done. And if it took slapping somebody around to get it through to them that they were done, it was done. And it, you can say it's, you know, nobody should hit anybody or whatever. But all I'm saying is it worked. And it seems like that has gone away. And I see a bigger problem with little bitches than I do little punks right now. Personally. I have seen girls say and do things that I, I, I just, I, I can't believe it. It's a sickness, and our society is sick. And that's, you understand the root of this. Our society is sick, and parents aren't correcting this, and teachers aren't correcting this, and no one's doing anything about this anymore. And, and, and so th there's the one thing is that there was a limit. The other thing is there was an end. And what I mean by an end is the, the kid that was bullied, all he had to do is get through school and could go home. Maybe he had to deal with it on the bus or maybe part of a walk home. We got home and was gone. There was no Twitter or Facebook or places they could post pictures of him and make fun of him and, and, and taunt him beyond the realm of the school. So I think this is a very serious problem. When kids start saying things like, I want you to kill him or I'm going to kill you or I'm going to shoot you, I think that has to be taken very, very seriously. I think in many instances it is all talk, but you cannot assume that. I couldn't walk up to you on the street and tell you I'm going to kill you and, and expect not to have any repercussions for it. Do you call the police here? I don't know. I don't know. You have to determine whether it's that serious or not. But I would tell you this, this shit about, well, we're investigating, it'll take eight days. No, right now, I would, I would contact the school and say, we're going to discuss this and you're going to fix it. You're going to fix it. Because I'm not having the, whatever you have to do. If you have to put my child on one side of the school and this other person on the other side of the school, and I would seriously think about getting in touch with this girl's parents. And I would have a very polite discussion with their parents. I would say, listen, I don't blame you for what she's done. And we, even if you know, you, you have to come up with it, we don't know what back and forth has gone on. But we do know there's a problem. And I think we need to be sensitive, you and I, and we need to make sure that anything we do doesn't make it worse.
I mean, the, the best thing would be for this parent to grab their daughter by the face and say, you go near that girl again, I'm going to hand your ass to you, but most parents won't do that anymore. So you have to, tr maybe, maybe that, so you, I don't know if that's the key. I don't know if going through the school is the key. Uh, I would tell you this. Any further threat of violence, I would involve law enforcement. Because you don't have much better alternatives. You really don't. You really don't. Because the school's not going to probably do anything. And their parents aren't going to do anything. So I would go, I would go one of those two routes first and then any threat of violence. But I'll tell you what you really have to do. You have to go into a defensive position. What, what, what the system refuses to acknowledge is how many of our kids kill themselves or do harm to themselves in some way long term because of this shit. Whether it's direct, Like my friend's son, who, you know, by the time it happened, he was out of school. He was 21 years old. He hung himself with his belt, but it all went back to that. It all went back to feeling like a useless person because of bullying. Or, well, that person ends up 22, 23 years old with no future and a substance abuse problem because they turn to substances and groups that embrace those substances because they're accepted there. They just dis like it. Well, if the if they didn't stab him, then you know. So, I I think that when when I I did a show on bullying, and I'll look it up for you and put it in the show notes. And I had a, a psychotherapist, a psychotherapist on to talk about it. And the main thing he worries about is the child being bullied, counseling them, figuring out how to get through it, dealing with it from their angle, because the system's set up to where you can only do so many things. Because I'll tell you, if this kind of shit had happened to my son, I would have had to use every bit of self-control to not go grab the bully by the throat. You know, I don't know what's wrong, you know, a grown man grabbing, a, let's say, a 14-year-old boy by the throat and putting his head up on a wall. I would have had to fight it. I would like to believe that I would have won that fight and I would not have acted that way. But when I see the shit that goes on today with these kids tormenting other kids, all I ever go back to All I can ever go back to is remembering the fact that it was somewhat self-policed. Because if you did see somebody being picked on, and you, 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 it's the same thing some parents go through. You know, I remember like being a senior and seeing this stuff go on in my high school. And you knew if I, if I interfere with this right now, as soon as I turn my back, this prick's going to be back and it's going to be worse. But if I let it play out, and I only intervene when I see that it's really going too far, And when I intervene, I say, if it happens again and I find out about it, there's going to be a problem. Did that stuck? That he didn't make the situation worse? Because all of a sudden it was, and I think that's a big thing that's missing, it were peers. And when your teacher says leave him alone, or when your principal says leave him alone, all you're thinking about is I just want to stay out of trouble. But when your peer says it, first of all, it has more impact. And the other thing is, well, he might kick my ass or she might kick my ass. Or I could end up being the one bullied if I push this too far. And I don't know how you put that back. That was a natural organic thing that existed. I don't know how you reinstall it in a system that's, that's, that's ruined it. But I would tell you this. If I got to a point where I felt this was legitimately threatening the safety of my child, 
whatever mechanism was in place to get them moved to another school within the district, to homeschool them, to private school them, to whatever, I would do it. You will not threaten the safety of my child. You won't. And that needs to be, in the end, your child's safety, and that's not just today. That's their long-term safety and stability. This type of mental attack on kids by other kids is dangerous. And the people that just say, well, when I was a kid, people got picked on. I've just explained to you the difference. I've just explained to you the difference. But what I'd like to do for the people that say that, I'm like, why don't we lock you in a room with me? Or if you're bigger than me, we'll get somebody bigger than both of us that can just torment you for eight hours a day. And no one will do anything. And I'll say, just stand up for yourself. Stand up for yourself. Stand up for yourself. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I know there's somebody out there going, I'll beat your ass, Jack. Maybe you would. But we'll get somebody that can just beat the shit out of you that there's nothing you can do. Bullies do not pick. Bullies do not pick on people that can stand up to them. No matter who you are, somebody can kick your ass. There's only one person in the world that can say, no one can kick my ass. And two people can. Because you see what I'm saying, right? Obviously the logic, logic there. That, you know, there's one person in the world who would win against every other single individual in the world. And they wouldn't win every time. But you could take, you could take a, a good fighter. And take four guys that are all a little bit bigger than him that he could take out individually, even though they're bigger and stronger because he's a good fighter. Put all four of them on him. That's how these bullies are. They get one little, you know, individual in a group like this that becomes a ringleader. And something needs to be done. And I, this is one I'm going long on and I shouldn't. I don't really have a good answer. But in my, my overriding answer is whatever you need to do to protect your children within the bounds of what's moral and the law. That's what you do. And you demand it. This, this, this girl should be separated from your child. Um, you might try very nice approach to the parents of the other child. Because no parent ever believes their kids are the problem. You have to understand that. And if your kid, if you, you know what, if your kid's not the problem, then it wouldn't matter that they just don't talk to each other anymore. If my child's the problem, because that's kind of how I would have a discussion with a parent. Let's assume that you're right and I'm wrong. Let's assume that Susie's not the problem and, and my Tammy is. Let's just assume that. Then what I would want is Tammy and Susie to stay the hell away from each other and both of them to have their asses handed to them if they ended up in the same place at the same time. And anything other one that's absolutely required. And if either one of them even looks at each other the wrong way, they're in trouble at home. Now, if she's the problem, then that works. If she's the problem, then that works. If they're both the problem, that works. So why don't we end this now? But if you don't have a, pro a parent, because I'm telling you, if it was my kid that was the bully, I'd have the conversation one time and it would be over. It would be over. You're not going to go near him. You're not going to look at him. You're not going to. But, Dad, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You don't go near them. You don't speak to them. If they cause something, you walk away and you tell me. But you don't go near them again. Or you won't see the light of day other than to go to school and home until you graduate. Parents used to talk like that. I don't know.
Focus on the child's safety. Focus on their security. Do what's ever necessary to protect them. This next one is from a comment on the blog. It's from Java Man. Java Man says, Your discussion about new tech and such, specifically the one statement about, quote, If Amazon delivers by drones, what opportunity is that going to destroy? And what opportunities will that create? Got me thinking about possible example of the past. A lot of buggy whip manufacturers went out of business when the newfangled horseless carriages came out. I wonder how many managed to survive by thinking this horseless carriage has a way to steer and is basically a stick and wood wheel. What if we who work with leather made covers for these things? Sometimes thinking like that helps me see opportunity and what is staring me in the face. That's a perfect example. And I'll tell you what, the reason I said if Amazon starts doing most of its deliveries with drones, what opportunities does it create is I don't have an answer for that one. So I see it's much easier when it's obvious what the human equation is. So one example right now is Amazon is starting to harm its biggest uh, supplier, which is the post office. So and and you know FedEx and UPS and everybody else that they use to deliver packages by having people deliver Amazon directly in an Uber-like way, and so the opportunity there is obvious. You can become one of those people. Well, if you become one of those people, the problem you face is eventually the drone replaces you too. I think that's a ways off though. Can you use that to raise capital and do something entirely differently? Because the example that Java Man gives. You know, when they started making automobiles, the concept of leather going in the interior, that went right into the the factories and the efficiency of production. So the days of accessories took a while to really catch on. But, you know what, there was probably a big opportunity for some sort of automotive accessory as that market expanded. And maybe leather was part of it. Maybe it was something else. Who knows what it was? Eventually, it became a major industry of its its own. But the pioneers that went into it would be the ones that would have the early first mover advantage. And again, I think it's important that we keep thinking about this concept of some things are inevitable, but that doesn't mean the the the, the pieces of them are. In other words, the 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 internet was inevitable. Uh, but Google becoming what the, the dominant player in search wasn't. There were a lot of different ways that could have went down. You know, Yahoo could have been it. But they did a lot of dumb stuff. Uh, online video was inevitable, but YouTube wasn't. Smartphones were inevitable, but the iPhone wasn't. So there's a lot of things that are inevitable. But the things around them right now are yet to be determined. And the dominant player is yet to be determined, or the dominant thing is yet to be ter- determined. But there's in, in our world today, in our society, where everybody can reach millions of people, the, the vertical niches are just what you call long tail. There's billions of them. And all of those are not inevitable. None of them are inevitable. What they'll look like is is not inevitable. There, there's always something you can do to adapt. Always something you can do to adapt. And and I, I think really we are going to be the ones that have to. People that are 20 to 50 right now, we're going to be the ones that have to adapt. As we adapt, that younger generation, the what they're calling not the millennials, but the internet natives. Millennials, you guys are already on the way out. You're already on your way to being old like us, whether you believe it or not. 
You'll be older, you'll be old as shit before you know it, bitching about the generation coming behind you, just like we bitch about you. It's coming, it's coming soon to, to you. Okay? Those, those internet natives will land in the middle of the thing we've adapted to. We have to be the adaptive group now. Kind of the tweeners, which are the people between the end of the baby boom and the Xers, down to the millennials. We're the ones that have to figure out how to adapt to this shit. Because it's coming, and it's coming fast. And you guys that are in the millennial generation, you have a little bit more time than us, because as that adaptation occurs, you still have a lot of your life ahead of you. This next 10, 20 years. The next 10, 20 years, I'm going to be in my 60s. It, it's going to be a difficult transition for me as well. We, but we all have to have eyes open and be asking questions like that. What does the loss of this represent in the opportunity of the shift in people, patterns, behavior, demographics, monetary investment, whatever. Always ask the question. Always turn every situation into a question. I wish I didn't have to. How can I avoid? I wish I could. How can I? That alone will give you an advantage over the others around you because most people won't do it. Because the, the, the word that springs to mind when I start talking about this is is actually two words, a phrase. Mental lethargy. People are mentally lazy. They don't want to come up with a solution. They want somebody to give them a solution. They don't want to fix things. They want somebody to fix it for them. And that's your opportunity. Because if you figure out a way that you can fix something and make a profit for a whole bunch of people that don't want to do it for themselves, and that could be mechanical or theoretical or whatever then you have a way to profit. And, and profit might even change what that really means. And we might not measure it so much in direct monetary units in the future if certain things happen the way that they might. Speaking of the future, and sometimes it's scaring the shit out of us, I have a new technology to tell you about today. It's called gene splice, uh, gene silencing. Um, I guess I want to say splicing because as bad as that is, uh, this is this is something that scares me worse, and I love a little bit of propaganda put at the end of this article. I'll, I'll skip to it when I when I give you the basics of this. Uh, this is by Michelle Page. It's on New Scientist, <laughs> so we know it's legitimate because it's science. It's settled. Um, don't like the look of those roses in your garden. One day you might be able to buy a spray that changes the color of the flowers by silencing certain genes. Farmers may use a similar uh, gene silencing spray to boost yields, make their crops more nutritious, protect them from droughts, and trigger ripening. The technique could let us change plant traits without altering their DNA. Quote, a spray can be used immediately without having to go through years involved in development of GM or conventionally bred crops, says David Balcom of the University of Cambridge, who studies gene silencing in plants. One spray can also be used on many different varieties, he points out. Companies like Monsanto are already developing gene silencing sprays that get inside bugs and kill them by disabling vital genes. Um, I'm not even going to read the rest of this. I just want to read the very end of this just so that you can hear the bullshit at the end. The technology looks set to divide those who oppose genetically modifying crops with at least a few in the anti-GM camp welcoming the new approach. Quote, I've had organic growers call me up and tell me, hurry up with the technology, end quote, says Kilmer. Right. Right. You have, you 
have organic farmers calling this ass clown that wants to develop a spray that you can spray on shit that switches genes off, telling him to come up with the new technology faster. That's why I can't read the whole article because you know it's if it ends with that it's bullshit. I want to hear. I got 150,000 of you listening to me out there. 150,000 on average per day. Okay, a whole bunch of you are into or you know uh, agriculture and things like that. A whole bunch of you are organically certified. I know. I've heard from you. I want to hear from one of you that's saying, I, I just can't wait for this, Jack. I'm an organic farmer and I can't wait to have a spray that I can spray on my plant that will shut jeans off in it. I can't wait to have a spray that I can spray on my field that will shut off the genes in, in certain animals or insects or organisms, and I think it's totally safe. This is, if you read the article, and again, I can't, again, it's a long article too, and the show's long on Mondays as it is. Basically what they're saying is it should be safe. They use words like that, it should be safe. It, it shouldn't be an issue. It shouldn't affect non-targeted species. It could, but it shouldn't. Does that give you a warm fuzzy? Do you feel good about that? You See, what they're saying is, you just understand that they said that, but they said here, um, one spray can be used on many different varieties. Mm, I see. Now, it won't affect non-target species, but we can use one spray on many different varieties. Why? Because they have an identical uh, gene uh, section, a segment. Is the word I'm looking for. They have an identical segment. And as long as that identical segment exists, that spray would work across multiple varieties because it alters that particular gene sequence, not others. Only that one. Well, does that happen to maybe include some sort of arthropod or some sort of nematode or something that's a non-target species that we could just wipe out and wipe it out before we really know that we're wiping it out? Create extinction level events at, at the at the, the 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 microbe level. Gee, we just don't know what that'll do, but it'll be okay. It it shouldn't pose. I mean, these are the scientists behind it saying it shouldn't pose a problem. It should be okay. I don't know if that actually concerns me more than if they said it absolutely won't. Um, because when you say something absolutely won't, ah, man, that gives me a headache. But 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 I know these people. I know how arrogant they are, and they generally do say shit like that. When when even they're like, well, no, it 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 could, but it shouldn't. What? So you, so you want to start playing around with genetics with a spray? You don't know what it's going to target. Th these people literally have no idea what the ramifications from what they're doing could be. The the the, the complete cynic in me wants to say these people have no idea what they're doing. It's not true. It's not true, and it's um, it would be dangerous to think that way because you'd be underestimating the people you're talking about. These people are very smart. Now, smart and intelligent is not necessarily the same thing. They're they're very smart. They they've learned what they've learned. They've gone to a an indoctrination center. We call it a university. They've learned to specialize in what they're doing. They can do things that I couldn't do. I don't know how. I don't have the knowledge. I'm not smart as they are at those particular things. I haven't been programmed to go in and do them. And they're not dumb people. But smart people can do dumb shit. And releasing an agent that can cause a chemical reaction that switches off genetics and doing it with a spray... 
at an industrial level is about the dumbest shit I've heard anybody want to do. I've heard some dumber things. But this is a level of stupid that, jeez, it, it, it boggles the mind that, that people that are this smart could think this is a good idea. And it goes back to monetary, um, monetary pursuit, the pursuit of money. They're brought up in a system, they're given a job, they put them in a white lab coat, they tell them, hey, if you do this well, you get a promotion. They don't want to believe that their company is, is, is Satan, you know? I don't know. If any of you think this is a good idea, I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to hear a well-thought-out, well-reasoned argument as to, well, we don't think it will cause uh, the effect of any non-target species, but it, it shouldn't be a problem. I want you to explain that away. I want you to explain why it can't cause a problem with non-target species when we know that it can. I want you to explain why they have to lie and say that they're hearing from organic producers every day that can't wait for this new technology. Because I don't know any of them. I've not heard any of them. I haven't heard anything from the organic community about wanting gene silencing technology. I don't know that it would legitimately be valid to even say it was organic if that was... I don't think that any of that shit's approved for organic use. If I'm wrong about that, let me know. But uh, if you want to read something that's like the epitome of bad ideas, read this article. There'll be a link in the show notes. So this next email goes straight in with the last one about the the lies and deceit of chemical agriculture and the chem ag industry and specifically the the giant in the room that is Monsanto. Um, this is one of those ones where it's it's Orwellian, but it's not the government. It's it, Of course, it, it, private organizations have as much power as governmental organizations in our society through uh, government, through government's revolving door uh, between the public and the private sector, and, and that's the case here. And their involvement with institutions of learning, whether it be, uh, you know, like you're about to hear about here, or higher learning and, and college, colleges where this young man will probably end up eventually. This is from Greg. Greg says, I was talking with a young man yesterday that was active in Future Farmers of America. He was a very bright guy and a state champ in an FFA speaking program. In our discussion, I mentioned Monsanto. He said that he really likes Monsanto because they are the sponsors of the speaking program, so they are graded on giving a pro-Monsanto message and negative comments about Monsanto are forbidden. The control and brainwashing starts early, Greg. Um, please let that sink in. FFA or Future Farmers Association of America is uh, Future Farmers of America is a huge thing about getting our young people to go into farming because we need them. We have millions of farmers retiring. The average age of a farmer in America is 66 today. Somebody's got to grow our food. It can't all be done by robots. Somebody has to own the robots that grow the food, right? Own the land that grows the food. Oversee the business that, that, that the robots grow the food in. This is necessary. They are forbidden from saying anything negative about Monsanto. And they are graded on giving a pro-Monsanto message. What does it say about an organization that does that? 
Can, can you see yourself, let's say that you decided, hey, I, I want to sponsor a group of young people that do speaking uh, engagements in an industry that I care about, and I have a big company, I'm worth millions or billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars, a trillion dollars in the case of Monsanto. And uh, I just want them to you know, do better, and I'll sponsor them and give them some things. But, but as a condition, one, they have, to, they have to say good things about me to get a good, good grade. And two, they're forbidden from saying anything bad about me and, and what I do at all. And even if they're not directly benefiting, anybody in the organization, I want control over the organization itself where it can't be negative. Holy shit balls. Seriously. That should be it right there. Any of you that had any anything left in your hearts for Monsanto at all should just say, nope, I'm done. I'm done. I When I read that, I, I was surprised and I wasn't at the same time. All right, let's go on to something different. Tori sent me an email. She says, hi, Jack, how, are, how can we harvest the uh, water containing uh, all of the snow? I live in inland northwest eastern Washington state. Okay, we currently experiencing the snowiest winter since 2008. Um, there are there's snow everywhere, and the berms from shoveling sidewalks and gr are growing taller and taller. But what I see is water, lots and lots of water, and that I hate to see just melt away. My property is on top of a small hill compared to the rest of the houses on our street. We did take advantage of the slope in our front yard and put in a garden. What else can I do? And other people who have snow to keep the water here. Thanks for your advice. Here's a link to a photo of my house, Tori, which I'm obviously not going to put her house online. It seems like a fairly small yard and what have you, so it's limited, Tori, what you can do. The answers are earthworks and ponds. That's about the only effective way to harvest snowmelt because you can't get it into – you could also, I guess, you could put in things like cisterns uh, and then do some micro-earthworks to direct the flow – into a cistern. So that one way you could get it into a tank that wasn't an open tank, like a, a ground cistern, would be to do that. That's about it. Because you can't, like, you know, start putting in jugs or something. It's not practical. The, the most practical way to harvest that water for long-term uh, use in the ecosystem around you is ponds. And then if we put earthworks like swales connecting to those ponds, we get a very efficient harvest. The next best would be swales and or terraces. For instance, here I have about 600 feet of swale on the uh, east side of my property. And two years ago, we had a lot of snow and ice. And each time it came and it melted, those swales filled, and they hold about 28,000 gallons of water when they're full. And then they took a couple days, because the ground was then saturated, a couple days to let that water soak into the ground. And that maintained moisture there much longer into the season. And that year we went into a drought that probably saved all my trees on that side of the property. That we had those those several melts like that and really charged up the ground. And it was because of my rock issues and all that was even limited what it could do. But had we been in a place with deeper soils, that collection probably would have taken that piece of ground through three to four months. In my case, it took me through maybe five weeks. So, so that's a very efficient way as well. And terraces. Anything that slows the water down and sinks it in. Because that's where you're going to have to store this water, either in the ground or in some sort of surface water. Now, you western states, you know, 
And again, your property didn't look very large to me. So you may not be able to do any of this stuff on any scale anyway, but a lot of places out your way, you can't put in ponds, which is just dumb. It's stupid. The, the water rights nonsense of the Western states is idiocracy. Um, there could be more water for everybody. If, if, if I took over Colorado right now, and they said, well, you got to solve the water issue, the very first thing I would do is say, we're going to stop telling people they don't have rights to the water that falls on their property so that we can all have more water. And we're going to put in you know, incentives to put in as many small ponds as possible. Small ponds weep water slowly into the ground. When you fly over Colorado, it's very dry, but you look and you can see all the pathways, the water just runs away, just runs away like crazy uh, whenever it does rain or whenever they have snow melt. Just creates tremendous erosion, but we, we have to let that happen so it can get into the, 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 the creeks so that we can get it into the reservoir so we can pump it back to people and charge them for it. Where we can actually recharge everything with smart earthworks. But on a smaller scale, you can only do so much. You know, little hand dug swales and stuff like that, little hand dug terraces and, and microwaves. Those work, but they work more on a each event extension Right, where snow melt in the spring is a major event. So, for instance, my swales again, I say hold somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 to 28,000 gallons, depending on exactly how full are they really full, are they overflowing, how dry was it, how much did they infiltrate before they started holding, but their capacity is somewhere in that 24,000 gallon range. That's a lot of water, it's a big installation. If we put in You know, a hand dug swale that's a couple feet wide. And you guys that build your swales, you know, these little mini swales, you don't want a swale that's two feet wide and freaking a foot and a half deep. That's not a swale. That's a, that's a, that's a ditch. It's very steep. It has to be shallow. A two foot wide swale should be maybe six inches deep. Well, how much water can that really hold? It can stop erosion. It can do quite a bit of infiltration, but it has a capacity limit. And in a, you know, a, a quarter inch or a half inch rain event, It may fill to capacity. That's great. All that didn't leave. We're directing that. If it exceeds capacity, we can direct it into larger systems. That's great. But if we have systems that size and that scale and the snow melts, we so exceed the capacity that most of the water's gone anyway. So get what you can. Do what you can. Hold what you can. And just understand that you can only do so much on small-scale earthworks per event. And every time we exceed the capacity of our earthworks... We found the limit of our battery. That's another way to think about it. So if you give me a piece of property that's three acres, it might be like having a couple nice, you know, group, group 29 marine batteries. And then if you give me an acre, well, maybe I'm down to, you know, one, one smaller regular size car battery. And then if you give me a quarter of an acre, maybe I'm down to like a, a battery that starts your tractor. And if we go down to like a tenth of an acre lot, then I'm down to like a couple D cells or something like that. And that's not scaled, but you just kind of get the, the image there when it comes to, to the water battery capacity of the land. So for the suburban solutions, we need more integrated solutions like Brad Lancaster is doing in Tucson, Arizona, where they're cutting curbs. And it's not just this house harvesting the, 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 the moisture, but it's a whole street. Now we have a bigger battery. So that's always how to think about managing water uh, from from rain, from snow melt, from anything, is to think of the comp concept of a capacity of the battery of the land. Where can I store it in the ground? 
and then you just accept your limitations. So I, I, I know that may be not the answer you want to hear, but that's, that's the limit. You can do swales, you can do terraces, you can do ponds, and you can do in-ground cisterns that you, you direct flow into through earthworks and micro-earthworks. Those are about the only things I can come up with anybody. If anybody else has any other ideas, love to hear them in the show notes today in the comments. I find this last one fascinating, and I, I am becoming a bigger and bigger fan of Scott Adams over the years. Um, Dilbert was a great comic, but the work that, that Scott has done as a, basically as a libertarian-angled thinker uh, and business thinker has has been much more useful to my life than the, the, the humor that I got from Dilbert, the ironic humor that I got from Dilbert. Uh, this is from Scott Adams' blog. Uh, and uh, it's called How to Know Your Product Will Succeed. And um, it was published uh, January 6, 2017, so a very new article. Uh, new for me, anyway. You know, I don't usually cover breaking news, right? It says, people often ask me if it's possible to use the tools of persuasion to predict which types of products or business will succeed. I'll tell you a trick for doing just that, but keep in mind this is not backed by any studies or science as far as I know. This is based on my experience alone and is subject to all the usual biases. I recommend looking for the pattern I'm about to describe in your own life to see how it often predicts winners. You might be surprised to how well it works. I've started dozens of businesses, if you count the ones that died before they even got named, and the experience has given me a fairly reliable pattern for predicting which types of products will succeed. At least I hope it's reliable. So far, it's been spot on. The pattern is this. Look for unexpected positive physical action from potential customers. I'm going to repeat that. I, I This has been added to my business acumen for eternity. Those words are now burned into my brain like many of the other concepts that I've taught in business. I will never let them go. Look for unexpected positive physical action from potential customers. I'll have to give you several examples before you can see what I mean. When Dilbert first appeared in newspapers in 1989, it was not a success. It appeared in fewer than 100 newspapers and didn't grow much for the first several years. With syndicated comic strips, that sort of slow uptake and modest demand almost always predicts a slow decline to failure. My syndication company at the time, United Media, moved their marketing focus to newer comics and left me to fend on my own. And fend I did. I started running my email address between the panels of the comic. This was when email was still so new that most people didn't even have it. My inbox exploded. The number of people sending me email was far beyond what made sense for a failing newspaper comic. The email response was unexpected, and it required physical action from the sender. As you probably know, Dilbert went on to be one of the biggest comic properties in history. As Dilbert grew in popularity, people started emailing to say they were sorting my comics into themes and using photocopies and glue to create their own physical books with chapters for each topic. Literally dozens of people emailed me to say they were doing the exact thing. They said they would love to buy my book of this type for me if I also added some text to go with the comments. This type of reaction was unexpected and required physical action. I designed my first nonfiction book, The Dilbert Principle, exactly the way the fans asked me to do it. The book went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller. After I got rich with Dilbert, I decided to create a business that would benefit the world so I could give something back and be a good citizen. I thought I could engineer a food product that was convenient and tasty and had all the nutrients one would need for an entire day. 
I invested millions and worked on the product for years. It was called the Dilberto, a frozen burrito brimming with vitamins, minerals, and protein, and complex carbs. Lots of people said it was a good idea. Some even said they loved the product. But none, nobody did anything unexpected and physical. They just bought the product and ate it as expected. And not enough. It never took off. Eventually, I closed the business. I experienced a similar reaction to my earlier startup, CalendarTree.com. The product solved an important problem in scheduling, and thousands are using it today. But no one did anything unexpected and physical because of it. They just used it the way it was expected. But not of enough, not enough of us to someday, not enough of us to someday monetize it. More recently, I co-founded WhenHub.com. It does everything Calendar Tree does, but it's an order of magnitude larger in scope and features. WhenHub is a way to create and share interactive visualiz visualizations of any events over time. And the related WenHub app is like an Uber app without the Uber car, a way to watch people approach a meeting on a map. WenHub is already generating unexpected physical action. Specifically, people I have never met before are contacting me via social media and asking if they can invest. That doesn't happen for most startups. It certainly didn't happen with Calendar Tree. This sort of reaction is unexpected and requires physical action to contact me. We've also been contacted by companies that want us to add some feature so they can use it internally. That is not normal either. Based on the public reactions that are both unexpected and physical, WenHub should succeed. I also started a new book that will tell the story of how I use persuasion techniques to be the most accurate political pundit in the la of the last election. At least a hundred people have asked me to write a book of that type. That type of reaction hasn't happened since I wrote The Dilbert Principle. This too is a good sign. My 2017 is looking great. The reason I call this a persuasion-related prediction is it doesn't involve facts or reason. Predictive-wise, I don't care if someone thinks my product is most youthful and of good value. I'm happy about that, but it doesn't predict anything. I need to see people doing things that are so unexpected it borders on irrational. That's a good indicator. Facts and reason are not. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. If you are involved in some sort of new product or business, ask yourself while people are already reacting to it. If they are doing, all they are doing is complimenting you on your idea, perhaps sharing some links on social media, that doesn't predict success. But if people are asking to bring a friend to see your product or offering to invest or using a product some new unexpected way, you might have something there. Look for the unexpected and physical reactions to, the, to predict your product's fate. All right. My book about this chapter is, uh, book about this topic in chapter one is here. Uh, so he's promoting his book. Don't blame him. Uh, I would too if I were him. Um, I have a link to that article so you can read it if you want to reread it or find the article, uh, the, the chapter one of the new book coming out. And again, Scott, I think is just a, a great commentator. I'll say he's right. And it is, it is the story of the success of the survival podcast. And, and let me tell you what I mean. I, I talked about this when I've talked about the business lessons of this show becoming successful, but I never phrased it this way. I, I didn't have the, I didn't, I didn't kind of codify it down to this business principle. Look for unexpected positive physical action from potential customers. So when I started the survival podcast, some people made like bumper stickers and, and stuff like that. And, and went on the forum and said, hey, I'm doing these jacks. This is okay. If you want some for the cost of shipping, I'll ship you five. That was unexpected. Then 
it spread like, this show spread like a wildfire through the Appleseed community that does the Appleseed shoots, so much so that it, at several different places they have rack rifles, they call them. So you go in and you shoot with a Ruger 10-22 with a few modifications to make swapping the mags a little faster when you shoot your qualification and you do your Appleseed you know, uh, classes. And in the rack rifles, this person had gotten a hold of my decals and put them on the stocks of all the rack rifles so that everybody that came to a shoot would see TSP as a supporter of Appleseed. When I didn't financially support it. I just put it on there and said, hey, you should be part of this. I still have their logo on the website to this day. But that was an unexpected physical reaction. And, and while I didn't explain it that way, this early on in the show is when I knew I'm going to leave corporate America. This is what I'm going to do now. When I saw people doing that, I, I knew that it would be successful. And other things I've tried to do that I expected that, didn't it didn't happen. Gen Ford was something that I thought everybody would latch on to. And people just didn't. Some people used it. Some people liked it. I'm hoping Neil can fix it. But we couldn't get enough momentum in it to make it fun to the further development of itself. It, it just kind of fell flat. And And I should have understood when people weren't taking it in the way that I expected that it, it was, there was a problem there. I, I think this, this principle is equally valid, not just for predicting whether or not something's going to succeed, but evaluating whether it's going to succeed on its current track and what can we do to change that. However, here's a caution. When I was a marketing consultant, one of the many hats I was wearing before I started TSP, The companies that I worked with always wanted this kind of response. This is what they're looking for. Scott may have drilled it down to a, a single sentence that specifically explains it, but this is not really something that businesses don't understand. You want fanboys and fangirls, right? They, that's... Apple, Microsoft, two perfect examples. It's competitors. They both have these extremely dedicated people that will go out into a public forum and defend the product better than the staff can. That's a that's an unexpected positive physical action. So companies knew they wanted this. But what I learned through creating it with TSP is it has to be organic and genuine. You can't cause it to happen. But I do think what you can do is say, are we explaining it fully? Are we on the right path? Do we have the right idea here? Because if you're going to make something really succeed, that's going to, I completely agree, that's going to be your indicator. When I wanted to get on um, uh, Judge Napolitano's show and... What ended up happening was, was so many people like lambasted them with their, with they had, were taking feedback through, I don't remember exactly what it was, it was almost like a, like a Reddit thing they had set up. It, it just blew it away and, and I was able to get on the air with Judge Napolitano. That was unexpected. It required somebody to physically do something. We won podcast of the year. I asked you guys to do it, but it required effort. You had, like Some of you guys went and voted every day that, that season that we took a run at it. I think we could have won it more, but I didn't think it really, like we're just like patting ourselves on the back at a certain point. But we were able to do these things because, because people were willing to do something. So if you want a successful business in the future, you have to have something that people don't just look at and go, yeah, that's nice, I'll buy it, but an unexpected positive reaction. 
and, and if you try to force it, so that's what that's like. It's one of those things that's difficult. How do you get it without forcing it? How do you get it without attempting? Because I didn't come out and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build a business. It's so awesome. People are going to make make swag on my behalf. You know, I had a guy. I have in in my my challenge coin case. I have two aluminum challenge coins that were made from a piece of basically aluminum stock and engraved by a guy that he made some and gave them to like his friends that all listened to the show that, that hung out and had a beer every week. He heard me talk about challenge coins. He made them. He sent me a couple. I mean, how do you get people to do that? And I know this is going to sound like a cop out. You do the right thing for the right reasons. Some people are going to say that's oversimplifying it. But I think that the entrepreneurs of the future are going to put their hearts and their souls into what they're doing. So that it's even if their product's a physical product, it's very difficult to separate the product from the person behind the product. They're going to live their product. They're going to live their service. To when somebody says, like, I have stuff all over my house right now. That, that, that doesn't really, I don't know who the owner of the company is or something. And I have very little loyalty to it, unless it's something I've used for a very long time. And those things maybe have unexpected positive reactions a hundred years ago. If their legacy companies are still around. And so it's, it had to happen somewhere to spread that message. And I'll tell you what, it's like magic when it happens in the best way possible. And I don't mean like everything's easy, because it's still hard. What I mean is when you when you, you when you see it happening, and it's your creation, you feel it. You feel it, and you become so committed to what you're doing, it's almost impossible to fail. And this is why I say, you know, counter to many of the the gurus of today, follow your freaking passion. Follow your passion. Why wouldn't you follow your passion? Of course you should. You can be successful in almost any niche today. So why would you involve yourself in something you don't like? Follow your passion. And then what you're looking for is that to translate into your audience, no matter what kind of audience you have, whether it's a, a, a you know a, a content-driven business like I do, and your audience is literally an audience, or your audience simply being the people who use your product or service, to be so enthused with it that they want to tell other people about it. Because here's the reality. Marketing is telling a story. That's all marketing is, is telling a story. Successful marketing causes other people to tell your story for you. And it almost doesn't matter in what form they do that. It will be an unexpected positive reaction. Scott Adams is a freaking genius. Because he's taken something that every successful business person has known but he's done what nobody else that I know of up till now has been able to do. Defined it. He's defined it. And he got an unexpected positive reaction. I just told 150,000 people about it. Hope he appreciates it. Anyway, um, with that, if you like this show and the work that I do and you, you know, you, you want to support us, consider joining the members of support brigade. If you do that, you'll get an unexpected positive reaction. You'll get discounts to over 65 companies, uh, to buy things that you're probably buying anyway. And when you go buy them, uh, when you were going to buy them anyway, when you get your discounts, it'll pay for your membership. 
So your membership doesn't actually cost you anything, and yet you support the work that we do at about 18.3 cents an episode. And those of you who have served us, either at home or abroad, uh, by being a member of the armed services, by being a member of the Peace Corps, by being in law enforcement, or by being a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you guys qualify for a discount. Just email me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences and I will get back to you just as soon as possible. And remember everybody else, you just go to the site and click on members and you can sign up there. It is a cool product. And if you like this show and you listen to us all the time, please consider supporting us that way. The other way to support us is through tspaz.com. tspaz.com, of course, is the way that you can shop amazon.com through the survival podcast. You just go there. You just go there. And uh, once you get there, you click a link, and you're on Amazon. It looks the same as it always was. You do your shopping. We get credit. That's it. And that is so simple, so easy. If you like our show, please do that for us. It helps us so much. Uh, today's item of the day, though, I do review an item on on, uh, on T-SPAS every day, the item of the day. It's Hops Number 9 Bore Solvent. And uh, we are continuing our little project in 2017. Over the first few months of 2017, Uh, I'll include an item or two every week uh, that goes in your gun uh, smith and maintenance kit. And by the time we get to, let's say, the end of March, uh, if you are a new firearms enthusiast or you just never really got your stuff together, you won't have everything. You, you, know, you won't be out there doing hand checkering of gun stocks or whatever. But for your basic maintenance and cleaning and upkeep, you'll have everything that you need. Uh, and you'll be using the same stuff that I've been using for a long time. Now, Hops Number 9 Bore Solvent. This is a stupid little thing that caused me, I didn't even think about it till I just read the last segment, to take an unexpected positive reaction, uh, even though this product's over 100 years old, to tell a story. And uh, the story I tell in my review, and you can look at my review and, and learn other things about it, but was, I remember my grandfather showing me how to clean the bore of his old Model 70. And this is all him talking. First, you take out the bolt. You never clean it from the front side, always from the back. Got it? Good. Now, pay attention. This is important. Now, you put a cotton patch on the rod, you dip it in the hops, and don't get it all over the place or your Grammy will get you. Grammy's what I call my grandmother, in case you didn't figure it out. Run it through the barrel nice and slow. One pass in and out, then get a new patch. Do it again, then one more time. Then you run two clean, dry patches through it, maybe three, but that's enough. Then you take one more and just put a pot, tiny drop of hops oil on it, run it back and forth twice, and you're done. That'll keep the rust out of your bore, and no one wants a rusty bore. It hurts when you pee if your bore is rusted. You think that's funny, do you? Well, good, it means you're paying attention. It ain't like when I was in the Navy. We were shooting deer here, not Japs. Deer don't care if your gun is perfect, just that it works. You don't have to get all out of sorts with this stuff, understand? Now, if you do a lot of shooting, we might need a brush or some of that copper solvent. But most of the time, when you're just sighting her in or got your deer, this is all you need. When you want to practice, stick to your 22. .30-06 rounds are expensive. So are good guns. So take care of it like this, and it will be around when you're as old as I am. Now take that oil rag, give it a good wipe down, and put it in the cabinet till next time. That's a real story of my grandfather teaching me how to clean the bore of a rifle before I even had one. And for the last 30 years, that's how it's been. I still have my first deer rifle, and I have that .22 was talking about. Hops products have been maintaining them all the while. I don't know how long my grandfather had been using hops. I never asked him, but I get the feeling it was forever. 
And again, the company is over 100 years old. And so that's the product of the day, hops bore solvent, and it basically cleans your bore, uh, gets out your powder residue, your you know, lead fouling and things like that. And uh, you can use it. I talk about using it along with a brush if you have a little bit more uh, work to do than just cleaning out after a couple shots. Uh, but in general, it's all you need. It's for that everyday maintenance of your bore because it hurts to pee if your bore gets rusted. Remember, that's what my grandfather said. I will say something here. I know there'll be at least one person in this audience that'll be politically out of sorts, and I wonder why you're in this audience if you are. And you'll cone in on the fact that I said my grandfather said we're shooting deer here, not Japs. Well, I wouldn't ref I wouldn't say that today. But my grandfather joined the Navy um, a few weeks after Pearl Harbor, believed in what he was doing, went away to boot camp, served the entire duration of the war, served in the Pacific, and that's the way he was taught to think to stay alive. He watched people die. And by the 1980s, even though it was old a long time ago for some people, it was still part of who he was. My grandfather was a good man, and I don't have anything against him for using that phrase. If you do, please go find your safe space and don't bother me. Everybody else, if you could shop at T-Spaz this week when you do your Amazon shopping, whether it's for Hops War Solvent or anything else, I'd appreciate it. That brings us to our song of the day today. And I was trying to think, as I was thinking about this story with my grandfather and and how much better America seemed to me in the 1980s sometimes, sometimes, than it does today. This song popped into my head, even though this song, I think, came out in 1971, I think. I'm not really sure. 71, 75, something like that. Don McLean, American Pie. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. And uh, I thought it would be interesting, maybe, for you guys to hear a little bit about the history of this song and the meaning of it. This is from Wikipedia under a subtitle, Interpretations. Except to acknowledge that he first learned about Buddy Holly's death on February 3rd, 1959, McLean was age 13 when he was folding newspapers for his paper route on the morning of February 4, 1959, the line, February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. McLean has generally avoided responding to direct questions about the song's lyrics. He has said, They're beyond analysis. They're poetry. He has also stated in an editorial published in 2009 on the 50th anniversary of the crash that killed Holly, uh, Richie Valens, and J.P., the big bopper Richardson, that writing the first verse of the song exercised his long-running grief over Holly's death and that he considers the song to be a big song that summed up the world known as America. McLean dedicated American Pie album to Holly. It was also speculated that the song contains numerous references to the post-World War II American events, such as the murders of civil rights workers Chansey, Goodman, and Schweitzer, and elements of culture including 1960 culture, saw cops, cruising, Bob Dylan, the Beatles, Charles Manson, and much more. When asked what American Pie meant, McLean jokingly replied, quote, It means I don't ever have to work again if I don't want to, end quote. Later, he stated, quote, you will find many interpretations of my lyrics, but none of them by me. Sorry to leave you all on your own like this, but long ago I realized songwriters should make their statements and move on, maintaining a dignified silence, end quote. He also com commented on the popularity of his music, quote, I didn't write songs that were just catchy, but with a point of view or songs about the environment, end quote. In February 2015, McLean announced he would reveal the meaning of the lyrics to the song The original manuscript, when the original manuscript went for auction in New York City in April 2015, 
The lyrics and notes were auctioned on April 7 and sold for $1.2 million. In the sale catalog notes, McLean revealed the meaning of the song's lyrics basically is American Pie things are headed in the wrong direction. Life is becoming less idyllic. I don't know whether you consider that wrong or right, but it's moral, it's a morality song in a sense, end quote. The catalog did confirm some better known references in the song's lyrics, including mentions of Elvis Presley, referred to in the lyrics as the king, and Bob Dylan referred to as the jester, and confirms the song cumulates in a near verbatim description of the death of Meredith Hunter at the Almond Free concert ten years after the plane crash that killed Holly Valens and Richardson. Uh, Mike Mills of REM reflected, American Pie just made perfect sense to me as a song, and that's what impressed me the most. I could say to people, this is how to write songs. When you've written at least three songs that can be considered a classic, that is a very uh, high batting average when it comes from these songs. It happens to be something uh, that great many people think is one of the greatest songs ever written. You've not only hit the top of the mountain, you've stayed high on the mountain for a very long time, end quote. I, I love this song. and I, I think there's a lot of symbology and poetry in the song. And honestly, the things that McLean revealed doesn't tell me everything, right? Um, I would tell you that you might want to look up the death of Meredith Hunter at the Alamont Free Concert if you don't know about that. I can't go into that today, but there's an there, there's a lot to be gleaned from that about the thinking McLean had. Um, and I won't even tell you what it is. If you want to know, you'll have to take an unexpected positive action and go find out for yourself. But when I think of things like my grandfather teaching me to clean that rifle, when I think of things like me being able to come home from school grab a, a box of 22 shells and my old Marlin Model 25 and head up the mountain for a day, and, and nobody cared. And I think that wasn't the 50s. That wasn't the days of socks hop. That was the 80s. When I think about the fact that I was able to buy my first car and, and pay for my bills as a, as a teenager through things like you know scavenging old copper and running a trap line, I, I do think America's less idyllic than it was. That spirit we've, we've lost and a certain innocence we've lost and a certain belief in ourselves that we've lost. But I don't think it has to be that way. I don't think it can ever be the same. I don't think we can go back to 1960, 1955, the good parts of it. There was certainly some really bad shit back then too. But I don't think we can just recapture. And remember, nostalgia is a seductive liar. But I think we can create our own New American Pie. And I think understanding some of what we've lost is a first step in the right direction. That's why I've chosen this for today's song. I hope you enjoy it with that. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride 
Singing, this will be the day that I die. 